Good morning, everyone. We'll move from obesity to diabetes now, another very important condition, chronic disease in our country. And I want to welcome you all to this uh, symposium about driving diabetes uh, equity, championing change. I am sure that you will enjoy it. We have a fantastic group of panelists as in all prior sessions. And we will have different presentations throughout the session. And then we'll be sure that we have some time at the end for you to ask uh, questions. Let me um, start by introducing our panelists. Well, first of all, for those of you that I don't have the pleasure of meeting and you don't know me, I'm Dr. Enrique Caballero. I am an endocrinologist uh, investigator at Harvard Medical School. I have been working in the field of diabetes for many years, and that's been really my passion to work with underserved communities. I direct the Latino Diabetes Program at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. Uh, I work at Harvard Medical School directing all the uh, diabetes education programs that we have nationally uh, and internationally. I'm very proud to be, uh, be, I have been working with the National Minority Equality Forum for many years, and I am now the, uh, the chair, uh, a, along with Angie, who I will introduce. We both uh, co-chair the diabetes uh, working group uh, for the National Minority Equality Forum. And so we are very grateful to Gary and everybody, of course, uh, in the organization for including this panel uh, in this session in the program. So you see there in the slide our distinguished uh, and esteemed faculty. Um, so let me just start. Gary Puckering, of course, Dr. Puckering doesn't need to be introduced again. You know him. He's the president and chief executive director of the National Minority Equality Forum. We also have Dr. Salah Mahmoud here, uh, close to me. And he is, as you can see there, uh, a professor of community health services and pharmacy and director of vaccine and drug evaluation center in the University of Manitoba in Canada. So great that he's here with us uh, in person. Uh, and then we have Dr. Daphne Ferdinand, who is uh, the executive director of the Healthy Heart Community Prevention Project in New Orleans. And uh, she's here with us to talk about her program. Uh, we also have uh, Elvira Rella, who is uh, also a champion in this field, director of nutrition in the Plaza del Sol Urban Health uh, Plan in Queens, New York. So she's here with us as well. And last but not least, Angie Brico, who is working for uh, Sanofi, as you can see there. And she's my, uh, uh, you know, my partner in this in terms of directing, chairing the uh, diabetes working group for the organization. And he's the head of U.S. Public Affairs and Patient Advocacy for general medicines at Sanofi. So you'll hear from different perspectives uh, about what's going on with diabetes, but more about the problem. It's also about the solutions, and I think that you are going to like what you're going to hear uh, today. But there's nothing better than starting from listening to a patient, a patient that has gone through the challenges of having diabetes. That's why we have this video for you. So let me introduce you to Ms. Cheryl, who is not only a patient with diabetes, but a community health advocate. And she has worked in the program that you will hear a little bit later with uh, Dr. Ferdinand. So let's play the video. My name is Cheryl Brickley, and I've been living with diabetes for the past 12 years. The problem is with me is, is and I imagine a lot of people is, really taking the medication and taking it like it's uh, uh, prescribed to take, that's the hardest challenge that I have. For the past three years, we have a diabetes preventing type two, type two diabetes class that gives us knowledge and information on how to manage your diabetes, a lifestyle with diabetes, so with these classes, it really helped because it's things that we didn't know that the physician just can't sit and take out much time and that length of time to explain and teach us. And I actually teach a class. So we're teaching on the diabetes, the risk factors, challenges that we're going through, knowing if we exercise, how many minutes a day, how many minutes a week, if we know how to eat our uh, food, measure, have that plate size, 
we learning all of these things because the doctor don't have all that time to really, really sit down and say, well, Ms. Brickley, um, if you do this, and now I'm going to teach you on how tracking your activities, I'm going to teach you on how to stay active, I'm going to teach you on the, uh, uh, the labels of the food. He don't have time, so programs like that really help, help those that's not able to even go to a doctor. And when once we let them know, even with you having the diabetes, you can learn how to live a better lifestyle with it and it can bring your numbers down. You can lose the weight, it's, you know, and it's the way that it's taught. So if we have more programs in the neighborhoods and in those areas that they cannot get access to medical care and, and just things that they need, but if they have more programs, to give the people the knowledge of the diabetes, then we will have more people taking care of their health and their diabetes better. So that's what we need. We need more access to healthier food and we need more knowledge. Places where they can go and get the information, take that information. They're getting exercise, they're getting all what they need and that way they can have a better lifestyle. Does that resonate with all of you? Yes. Uh, no, this is, this is very important because in the end, these are the people that we want to help. So let me set the stage for the next presentations by showing you some data very briefly in the next five minutes. Um, the first thing to say is obviously diabetes is a, a common disease, costly disease, and it's an irony that we are living the best time in the history of diabetes. Never before did we have more technology, medications, knowledge, etc. Yet most people are not achieving basic treatment targets. So here you see the data from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, three different periods that you see in the different colors. And just suffice it to say, if you go, you see to the right, the combined targets of achieving a good A1C, so that's diabetes control, blood pressure, cholesterol, and non-smoking, is achieved by only probably one in five individuals, and even less if you talk about Hispanics, African-Americans. So despite everything that we have developed, most people are not there. So that's a failure, not of the patients, of course, but of the system. This is not something that we're doing correctly. And we are spending a lot of money. This is a study, actually, that Dr. Gary Pukrain invited me to participate a few years ago, where we found that in the Medicare system, a lot of the money is spent in the wrong way. 70% of all the expenses in diabetes are placed in only 15% of patients with the disease. So a lot of money to a very few uh, number of individuals. Now, who are these individuals? Who do you think they are? The ones with complications of the disease, right? Because what's costly is chronic kidney disease, dialysis, heart failure, all the complications. So we're not using the money effectively, not at front, to treat diabetes and prevent the complications we're treating the consequences of the disease. So I have reflected about this for a long time, and what I think is happening in most cases is that we as healthcare providers are seeing patients, we all work in a healthcare system, and we want our patients to improve their self-care behaviors. We ask them to improve their meal plan, their physical activity, take the medications, etc. And that's working for some individuals only, not for all of them. What are we leaving out? I think that it's because we're not addressing the important things in patients. It's just about the biomedical model usually, but we don't pay attention to the social determinants of health, about all the emotional issues, everything that has been discussed in this great conference up to this point. So I think that's one of the things that we as healthcare providers need to do much better. And we also need to be more curious, more humble in how we approach all those conversations with patients. But clearly the healthcare system is not conducive to implement culturally oriented programs that can help most of the populations that are suffering from diabetes and its complications at the highest levels. And a few years ago, I developed this uh, list that I call the A to Z for the management of diabetes because I was trying to think about all those factors that I need to implement or pay attention to in my clinical practice, and others perhaps should pay attention to those as well. 
they're just in alphabetical order, in order of, of importance. But I can tell you that every single one of them, and you can go through the list very quickly, is not commonly addressed or not properly addressed in clinical practice. Unless we do something that is more comprehensive like this, I don't think we're gonna get to where we need to be in diabetes care. But all that needs to be part of the system, and that's not something that is happening at the present time. And my last slide is this one, because what I wanna show is that also in the pandemic, we have learned a lot of things. And this is related to what was discussed previously. I was uh, honored to chair this uh, international consensus uh, in which we got together because diabetes, of course, happens everywhere in the world and many people suffer consequences from the disease. And we suggested that as we move forward, look at the upper right um, uh, uh, corner there, what I think we need to do in the future is not to go back to what we were doing before in diabetes care, and that was to wait for people to come to us in the clinics or hospitals. What we need to do is to go where they are, in the community, in their homes, using telemedicine, exactly what was discussed in the prior session. This applies to obesity, to diabetes, and many chronic diseases. So I think this, this is an opportunity to learn from what happened before and then do things differently as we move to the future. And I will end with this quote that is one of my favorite quotes by uh, Desmond Tutu, who was a bishop uh, from South Africa. And he said, there comes a point where we need to stop just pulling people out of the river. We need to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. A lot of our patients, families, are just not helped at the right time and in the right way. And diabetes is obviously a serious condition that is affecting many people out there. So we're gonna hear now about more data about what's happening with diabetes and also, as I said earlier, most importantly, some potential solutions about how we can tackle this important problem. So with that, I'm gonna turn it over to uh, Dr. Gary Pukring, who is gonna talk about uh, some of the data very impressive about the um, A1C levels in different communities. So, Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Enrique. Um, so, let me make this go. So, this is probably about 2005. Um, I had this idea that if we took aggregated hemoglobin A1Cs, so hemoglobin A1Cs, are essentially a measure of the amount of glucose, sugar in the blood in a quarter. Uh, and your doctor uses it. And all of you go to the doctor, you probably get, uh, and uh, he draws your A1C, I have a lab draw your A1C. Um, I thought the A1C could be used as a measure to help us understand down at the zip code level how well we were managing diabetes as a community. So we could use it not just as an individual metric, but as a population metric. Um, so I went to a company, I'm not gonna use their name right now, and, and said, you know, they, they, they would, one of the major companies that was um, doing um, uh, A1C draws, and I said, you know, let, let, let's partner, and you know, I wanna aggregate these A1Cs by zip code, um, and when I say zip code, let me give you precisely why, why I was saying that. 38,000 zip codes in the United States, 70% of African Americans live in 2,500 zip codes. 70% of Hispanics are in 2,500 zip codes. 50% of Asians are in 1,500 zip codes. So roughly 8,000 zip codes around the country is where the majority of the minority population resides. And so when I was looking to pull those A1Cs, it, it was going to help me understand how well we were managing diabetes in those minority communities. So I went there, you know, as Gary Puckett might do it, and they said, nah. <laughs> and, you know, but to me, um, no is the beginning of the conversation. And so um, uh, fast forward now to almost, I guess it's uh, 15, 20 years later, um, through some other relationships, um, I got them to uh, pull uh, A1Cs. And so what you see here is a map of uncontrolled diabetes. It's A1Cs above 7.1 by zip code in the United States. Um, and you can see uh, from the map, there's a whole lot of uncontrolled uh, diabetes uh, in the country. But now we know where they are. We know who's treating them. We know what medications they are. And so now 
we have the beginning of a metric that we can use to manage care at the population level. Living is a collaboration, right? At the end of the day, it's a deep collaboration. And if we're going to be successful conserving life, we have to do it by the numbers. And we need to, we need to take every number we can get our hands on uh, that will allow us to understand um, what, what we're looking at. So this next slide, um, so that blue color is controlled diabetes. And um, what um, Dr. Caballero was telling you is that we're really not doing a, a good job uh, at controlling diabetes. Um, that the vast majority of people have uncontrolled diabetes. Now what I should tell you is that this represents almost four million blood draws from about four million people um, from about uh, 3,000 3, zip codes uh, around the country. Uh, so this is a big sample um, that, that you're looking at. Uh, and um, uh, you can see that the uncontrolled um, uh, population is a little over 40%, and 20% are severely under control. When I say severely under control, and Enrique and all the physicians in the house will understand, we're talking hemoglobin A1C of nine, right? That means you are really out of range. And so if I put the um, controlled and uncontrolled and severely uncontrolled together, what we see is 63% of the patients in these zip codes have uncontrolled diabetes. We have so failed them, right? I mean, collect, we gotta be honest, we failed, right? You can't have 63% of your population with uncontrolled diabetes. I mean, this is modern America, that's insanity. That is absolute insanity. And our healthcare system doesn't want to look at these numbers. It doesn't want to report them out because these numbers tell you that the system has utterly failed people with diabetes. And as Dr. Cabaret told you, we have, the, we have the technology. We can do better than this at any moment we decide to. So what's the consequence of all of this uncontrolled diabetes? When you start to look at the numbers, what you see is well over 60%, 70% of people with diabetes either go to the emergency room or have an inpatient stay every year, right? Well over 60%. And the numbers that Dr. Caballero showed you, we spend 70% of diabetes care in the Medicaid program taking care of people in the hospital. That's where our money is going. 70% of all the dollars that Medicare is spending, and by the way, 40% of the Medicare budget is being spent on people with an underlying condition of diabetes. So this is actually a very serious problem, right? And you can look at the emergency room visits. So when you, when you, when you take all those numbers together, what you find out, um, when I, I, I was looking at, at cost data now, so I'm taking the Medicare and the Medicaid program together, and what we see is the federal government pays for 76% of all of the hospitalizations for diabetes in the United States. That is your tax dollars at work. That's what your tax dollar is doing right now, right? And so um, at NMQF, we want to have this conversation about how do we really do population health? This is well beyond minority health. If, if, if I took you, showed these same numbers for white Americans, same number. An African-American with diabetes and ischemic heart disease has a 90% annual hospitalization rate. Who has a 90% annual hospitalization rate? So here's the challenge, right? We're, we're at this inflection point. Um, we are getting so very smart medically and with our technology. We're at this golden age. We, we, we can do really wonderful things. We can conserve life any moment we want to, right? But we're not doing it. And I'm going to leave you with this one final, final thought. 
uh, because as I started to, I mean, looking at diabetes, I can tell you about chronic heart failure, I can tell you a lot of different diseases. Our healthcare financing system is responsible for more premature deaths than any disease that we follow. Uh, I, you go look at the numbers, I'm telling you, if you look at the numbers, what you're going to find is our healthcare policy is driving mortality. That's what you see here in diabetes, because if we invested in these patients, we wouldn't see these numbers. And so that's the message that I want to deliver to you today, is that we can actually do a lot better than this if we want to, and we're not doing it. Yes, thank you. Thank you, uh, Dr. Brooke, and let's pass it out to Salah. While the pointer gets here, I will just add that, uh, you know, the problem, and that really upsets me, is that people are usually blamed for not having their diabetes under control, right? So we hear that over and over again. It's the patient's fault. It isn't. It's all these things that we're discussing. It's really that our healthcare system is not really conducive to improving that. All right, Salah, please go ahead. Thanks, Enrique. Um, and I would like to acknowledge uh, that the slides were created by Ms. Park from Sanofi. Um, this is not my work. Um, what we're trying to do here is uh, amass uh, more accurate information about the burden of diabetes, um, whether it's the, in terms of the outcomes of the disease itself, how many people get heart disease, how many people get high blood pressure, um, but also in terms of the cost and the patterns of healthcare utilization. Um, I know there are a lot of studies that have been published over time uh, that looked at this issue, and some of them have presented data for different ethnic groups in the, in the US. But the problem with most of these studies is they, they were um, designed to be top-down studies. So they would add up all the cost of healthcare in the US at the national level, and then they would measure the prevalence of diabetes, and then they will um, say, okay, diabetes is 20% of uh, all the diseases, so 20% of the cost must be due to diabetes. And then they partition that cost between different ethnic groups. Um, the problem with that approach is that um, a dollar is not a dollar, and a case of diabetes is not a case of diabetes. Um, if you spend money trying to prevent disease complications, um, that's a good thing. So having higher cost in that situation is, is, a, is a useful thing. But if you're spending money because you're failing people and people are ending up in ICUs and requiring uh, advanced treatments, uh, that's not a good thing. That's not a good way of spending the money. So the approach that we, um, we're thinking about taking here is to try and uh, uh, look at the, um, at the cost from using a bottom-up approach. And that's not usually possible in the US, but in this case, because we are using Medicare data, we're able to look at the entire population at their, all their costs, um, there are a few exceptions, but we should be able to um, look at the collectivity of the cost. And because we're also doing it over a number of years, we will be able to track the trend, which was another limitation of previous studies where you can't compare um, what happens over, over uh, time. Um, and also, we, we will include every aspect of diabetes care that we have information on. And you can see here in this list that we are not only looking at uh, things like hospitalization and ER visits, but we are also looking at uh, vaccination, for example, and uh, eye exams and screening for renal disease. Many of these components were missing from earlier studies. Um, I don't have much time to go through the details of the study, but please ask me questions or come and uh, talk to me afterward if you're interested or if you have any advice for us um, on how to go about doing this. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Sal. Um, 
I think, uh, yeah, we'll go to the next one. Well, what you have heard so far, colleagues and friends, is that obviously diabetes is a huge problem. We need to document this problem, demonstrate that to so many people out there so that we get, of course, support to continue with this activities. But now let's hear about some potential solutions, because up to this point, everything sort of <laughs> looks very grim. What can we do to help patients and families out there? So we have two great examples. So let's start with Daphne, who will now share her project uh, in New Orleans. Please go ahead, Daphne. Okay, thank you very, very much, and good morning, everybody. Um, I want to thank the intimate, uh, the National Minority Quality Forum, especially Dr. Laura Lee Hall for inviting me to talk about what we did in New Orleans. And seems like these slides are on automatic movement. So I'm gonna back, I'm gonna move backwards every time that happens, okay? Um, first, I wanna start with this slide where the CDC identified the southern portion of the United States as the diabetes belt. And what's unfortunate about this slide is that my city is included in this diabetes belt. Hence why we decided to develop the NOLA Diabetes Project, which is an eight-week educational program that we designed to help people living, in, living with diabetes to understand more about how to control and manage their condition, as well as to promote self-care. The other instrumental aspect of our project was our collaborative community, academic, and clinical partnerships where we mutually agreed that it was important for us to do something about the public health in the Lower Ninth Ward area, which is still ravaged from the aftermath of Katrina. Our partners were involved in a number of different roles, but I just wanna highlight just a few key areas that were instrumental to this project. Sankofa CDC, which is a community organization that lives and works in the Lower Ninth Ward and knows the lay of the land, did the marketing, the promotion, and also engaged our partners, as well as provided speakers, recruited members into our program. The Healthy Heart Project, which is my organization, focused on project management and supervision. Our Lower Ninth Ward Senior Center recruited their members into our program. Our NORD facility, which is our New Orleans Recreational Department, a city agency, provided the facility free of charge. And our two academic partners, Xavier University College of Pharmacy, provided free A1C testing, speakers, and also helped with curriculum development. And Tulane University School of Medicine also provided curriculum development. They were very instrumental with helping us with questionnaire development. And what was really important was the medical student volunteers who assisted our speakers at every session. And lastly, our Baptist Community Health Services, which was a clinic partner, also provided speakers. Now, we utilized some of the principles from the Drive Toolkit for Diabetes, which was our driving approach to developing our project, our project itself. It also helped us to inform us of identifying our team community leaders or our drive champions. Now the toolkit also suggests that we should learn more about diabetes within our communities and the impact that it has on our residents as well as the barriers that may exist. And our community partner Sankofa, and I'm gonna you know shout out with them because the video that you saw previously with Ms. Cheryl she is a community advocate with Sankofa, as well as one of the speakers who participated in our program. So they provided us the lay of the land in understanding the community and the impact of diabetes in that neighborhood, which helped us to plan our intervention activities, as well as to understand the importance of collecting data and constructing questionnaires around our session topics. Now, what methods did we use, which included having continued partnership meetings in order to develop this program from the ground up, where we recruited 25 of the residents who were living in the area, living with diabetes, where we conducted eight sessions over a two and a half month period from January to March of this year, we just finished last month, where we have the cell, held the sessions once a week on Thursdays, 
for two hours in the evening at our Nord Center. We did administer pre and post test procedures uh, before we provided the educational sessions and afterwards where we developed a 15 item questionnaire based on the diabetes topics that were presented. We also administered five questions from a 13 item patient activation measure survey, which measures one's ability to make changes in managing their health condition. And we also did the A1C testing before and after. This is a snapshot of the site where we had held our in-person meetings at the Lower Ninth Ward Sanchez Center, as well as a, uh, a site where you see on the map where the sessions were held in the heart of the black community. In fact, I grew up in this neighborhood as a kid and as a young adult. And on the right side, you see one of the flyers that we use to disseminate to promote the, the, uh, the program. I served as the project director. Dr. Keith Ferdinand was our health champion team leader from the Tulane School of Medicine, our academic partner. Dr. Ferdinand is also in the back of the room, and I just wanted to acknowledge him. These are our PharmD students who were providing the A1C testing to our participants from the School of Pharmacy. And the, I have about four pictures just to show you how we actually uh, captured the, uh, the classes within the, uh, the center itself. This is our PharmD professor from Xavier University College of Pharmacy. And as you can see, we did adhere to COVID mandates uh, uh, as for the guidelines from the city. Each participant were required to wear a mask as well as to demonstrate or provide uh, vaccination records before we entered the, um, the site itself. This is the, uh, uh, one of our speakers from our community uh, partners, Sankofa. Uh, Helen is our nutritionist, and she's teaching one of our, di our dietary classes. And you can see Ms. Cheryl in the background, who is also teaching our physical activity classes. These are our community health advocates from Sankofa, and our medical students were also demonstrating for our attendees. This is one of our pharmacy students, and we are really having some issues with this clicker here. So just bear with me for a moment, because I want you all to be able to see some of these uh, classroom uh, uh, pictures. This is our pharmacy student who also provided a um, class on medication. So all of our partners, we had four partners for the most part who were speakers in this program. These are our physicians from our clinic partner who taught the last class on self-care management. Now, from our, the results from our knowledge survey demonstrated an increase in knowledge from baseline to follow-up, as you can see from the raw scores and the percentages, and there was a significant increase in knowledge at the end of the program. We also saw some increases in the PAM or the patient activation measure, meaning that the participants felt like they were more able to manage their diabetes at the end of the program. So what we decided we're going to do next, well, first we're going to reconvene a partnership to discuss how we're going to um, learn from our lessons and from the challenges from our program so that we can improve it in the future. We also want to discuss how we're going to disseminate the results to our participants who attended the program. And I also want our partners to be involved in submitting abstracts, telling our story, and also writing about it. And lastly, we're very excited about doing another program sometime in the fall. Thank you all. Thank you, Daphne. All right, wonderful. Um, great. Um, so, Elvira, please go ahead. 
So good morning. It really is amazing to be here to hear all of your, um, all the information. It's, I've learned so much myself. Um, I'm with Urban Health Plan. Urban Health Plan is a network of community health centers that is located in New York City. We have health centers in Queens, in the Bronx, and in Manhattan. Today I'm going to speak about a program that we implemented at Plaza del Sol, which is um, a site located in Corona, Queens. And I will add that this is a site, this is a, a neighborhood that was highly um, affected by COVID. So I'll speak a little bit about our program objectives, partners, our plan, how we implemented the program, as well as our results and what our next steps are. So our program objective. Um, our goal was to provide education on diabetes self-management and healthy lifestyle choices to Hispanic and or Latino patients within the Plaza del Sol patient population who have received primary care in the previous six months. And we targeted patients with uncontrolled diabetes, patients with, we initially started with patients with an A1C of nine and above, and then we um, also went on to include patients with an A1C from eight to an 8.9%. These are our project partners, our individual partners at NMQF, as well as the staff at Urban that worked on this project, and our project plan. Um, so what we, the way we began is we went to our data management group and we requested a list of all the patients at, at Plaza del Sol who had an A1C of nine and above. Um, our goal then was to initiate an invitation um, for them to come to a diabetes class. Given the circumstances last year and the limited space given COVID, um, we decided that we wanted to invite these patients to a virtual diabetes class. Um, initially, our goal was 145 patients. Um, in addition to the class, later on in the project, we also, um, given certain circumstances, we were able to, we included uh, an alternate plan, which was to provide one-to-one -one, um, diabetes education to a certain number of patients that just could not make it to the classes. Um, our last part is our data collection, which consisted of all the patients in our population of focus. We also had a pre-test, a post-test, um, and, and we collected information of behavior change once the patients attended the one-hour diabetes class, which, by the way, was in Spanish and was held by um, a registered diabetes nutritionist. Our project implementation, as I mentioned, we had a pre-test. The pre-test I will be sharing with you shortly. It consisted of eight questions um, focusing on different aspects of diabetes and nutrition. Um, we did the classes um, through Zoom and we had a post-test and the post-test was done right after they finished the class. They got, the patients got a phone call congratulating them for complete, for attending the one hour class and then we proceeded with the post-test. So both the pre and the post were, were done over the phone and the class was a virtual class that they attended either through their computers or through their phones. <clears throat> This was our pretest. It was eight questions. We tried to make it um, as easy to understand, um, taking into account our patient's health literacy level. This was our smart food list. And let me just go back a little bit. Um, patients who completed the pretest, the post, and attended the diabetes class were given a $100 um, gift card. It was for a supermarket that we worked with that was in the neighborhood. 
Um, so patients were given this smart food list, and it's foods that meet New York City food standards, um, focusing here again on whole grains, lean cuts of protein, fruits and vegetables, low-fat dairy. And this was a list that we used also to train the supermarket owner as well as the cashiers so that when patients came to the supermarket to redeem that gift card, they would be choosing the foods that, um, that were healthy. So what were our results? Well, after recruiting, we had 102 patients that attended, that received diabetes education. Of those 102, 93 um, attended the virtual diabetes class through Zoom. And we had nine patients, like I mentioned before, that could not attend the Zoom, primarily because of their work schedule. So we arranged, uh, for most of them, a Saturday appointment, and it was a one-to-one, -one, um, also virtual. Um, looking at hemoglobin A1Cs, again, we started with our patients that had an A1C of nine and above. That was the majority, because that was our goal. Um, we had 65 patients with an A1C of nine and above, and they ranged from nine all the way up to 15. Um, when we included the, those patients with an A1C of eight through 8.9, um, we were able to have an additional 28 patients join us. And uh, as mentioned previously, we had nine patients who had the one-to-one. -one. So what were our results? So what we did learn is we divided the patients up. Um, those patients with the uncontrolled diabetes with the A1C of nine and up, their pretest scores were 69.3. Their pulse was 82.8, like a, I would say like 13% increase in knowledge. With the patients with an A1C of 8 through 8.9%, um, there was also great learning. It went from 68.42 to 78.92, over 10% increase in knowledge. And on the one-to-ones, um, those that those pretests were 68.3, with the pulse being at 92.7. It was a big uh, increase in knowledge. Um, but we, what we will see is how that fares up with the hemoglobin A1C improvement scores. So with our virtual diabetes class, we did see that 36.4% of our patients had a 1% or more reduction in their A1C levels. We were very proud of that. Um, with our patients that attended the virtual diabetes class, um, they also experienced a 1% more, and that was at 33.3. So even though one, um, one set of the group attended the group virtual and another had the one-to-one, -one, they both had similar um, hemoglobin improvement levels um, in the 30% range. Um, all patients as incentives received um, the $100 supermarket gift card and we chose that as an incentive given um, the food insecurity issues that we, we were aware of. Um, they all received as well the, the list of the smart foods and they also, when um, they came to pick up their supermarket gift cards, we all, we, they all received four copies of four key slides that we had um, reviewed during the class. So what were the implications of this um, program? Well, some of the things that we did learn is that many patients, um, because we did recruit close to 400, and we got 102, is that many patients were given COVID. Many of them were still, they mentioned they were just back to work. They were struggling to making sure they had enough money to pay their rent, so they, they couldn't make it to the class. 
Um, so something that we've considered um, is making these classes in the late evening. We did have um, five sessions of these classes. Um, we held them during the week, in the morning, we held them in the afternoon. Um, we also held classes, two classes were held on a Saturday at 5 p.m. Um, but something to consider for the future is having them perhaps on a Saturday um, a little bit later, maybe like 7, 7.30, so that we can accommodate those patients that have not one, but two and even three jobs and mention that um, they work six days a week. Um, another major barrier that we had, with, that we encountered is we did these classes via Zoom, assuming that many people were familiar with the Zoom. Um, and what we found out is there was a good chunk of patients that were not familiar with it. Um, and what we did then is we, we had those patients come into the health center. We assigned someone to help them download the Zoom app on their phone and we showed them how to work it. And that was something that was very helpful. Um, we also feel that um, our goal, our initial goal was to have 145 patients participate in the program. And we feel, we feel that with a little bit more time, we could have um, reached that goal. So what are our next steps? Um, so we do, we, like I mentioned at the beginning, we have multiple health centers. So our goal is to bring this program to another health center. Um, also, um, maybe doing the class in English, um, including another population from another community. Um, so that's, that, that would be one of the areas. And then we also want to compare our work on the one-to-one -one basis along with the virtual diabetes class and seeing how those two fare in terms of uh, knowledge base and in terms of A1C. That's it. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Larry. That's great. I mean, I, I truly think that community-based programs should be part of what we do routinely, but it's so hard to get them started, to sustain them, obviously to implement them. Uh, and uh, that's not part of the healthcare system, unfortunately. But uh, now let's hear from Angie about uh, perspective also from industry and how to implement some of these programs. So clearly, uh, as co-chair of the Diabetes Work Group for Health Equity with NMQF and SHC, one thing I want you to all leave with is we need you. We want you to be all in with us. As you see, we've got opportunities for advocacy, for research, for actually improving health outcomes in communities today. And we have this mutual goal because we know if we can bridge these gaps in diabetes, we can bridge other areas of population health. And we do have an urgent call to action because these gaps will only widen if we don't act together. We talked about this yesterday. The minority majority, we are facing quickly um, an urgent issue if we can't bridge this. But the good news is with SHC, with our involvement in, in the um, diabetes work group, we've created drive. And I've been five years working with Laura Lee Hall and her team. It started with the evidence that Dr. Pakarin talked about, looking at the data, figuring out those root cause issues. We started with vaccines and in fact piloted this six-step process as you heard about today and now bridged to diabetes. But what does it do? It promotes those health system and community changes, measures them at the backbone so we can see replicable behavior. And the good news is, is we've now not only demonstrated this for vaccines, we've built networks with COVID and um, have created health champions as well as analytical dashboards so we can now demonstrate and measure what we're doing with flu vaccine and COVID vaccine and can bridge this to diabetes as you heard from these wonderful ladies up here today. And with the new hiring of Saria Sakoshio, who's over there uh, as the chief medical officer of SHC, Laura Lee has a vision that any of you in this audience that want to be part of changing and building health equity in your communities with diabetes um, to be trained in this drive model and connected with the community leaders that exist. And this is what we're asking for. Join our work group, join us in driving health equity. As Dr. Reverend Terrence King said yesterday, 
The communities trusted us because of him, because we needed to help these communities with COVID and get vaccinations. But what they really wanted was our help with diabetes. And we're committed, we're all in um, to making this happen. Hope you can work with us in building those models and replicating and sustaining drive in diabetes. So we wanna take a few questions and a few comments. If you're all in, you wanna to come to the mic, go tell us right now, commit with us. Yes, Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. Yes, we, we do have a few uh, minutes, so if uh, anyone to come to the mics and ask your questions. Uh, but l let me just, uh, before I ask a question myself, uh, also set the stage here in terms of what Angie just mentioned, because to me, uh, there's always this perception that partnering with pharmaceutical companies, for example, may actually not be seen as something that is ethical or proper because there may, may be commercial interests, etc. But the reality is that we need everybody to really join this fight against inequalities. And I think that there's obviously very ethical ways of doing that. You know, your group is supporting some programs that have, of course, had in, uh, great success. And, uh, and that's the type of programs that we need. It's very difficult to get things going, uh, to get support, to start programs, to sustain them. Um, you know, I always reflect that. I don't know why we call it our healthcare system. It's really more like an illness care system because we really don't do much for health. It's really more about waiting for people to come to the hospitals when they're very sick. And that's late, that we should do things much earlier, identifying the problems, giving proper treatments, et cetera. And I think that would, that would make a big difference. Um, so if anyone has any question, please come to the mics. But let me ask uh, Daphne uh, here in terms of your program, because I was really impressed about the slide that you showed with all the partners. And that's hard to do. Uh, and, uh, you know, getting so many people on the table uh, and then discuss some of these opportunities. Maybe you can share with the group here about maybe the challenges, but the strategies that you found that worked in trying to get some support and bringing some people to this type of partnerships. Sure, thank you. Um, well, I first have to say that all of the partners, we all like each other. That's number one. <laughs> and we also have a history of, 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 of networking with one another. I'm from New Orleans. I'm from that area originally. I was born and bred there, lived there as a young adult. So I pretty much know the lay of the land, although I don't live there anymore. But I still go back to that community and work with that community and has a connection with some of the other partners that I listed, like the Senior Center, number one. Um, we identified the one partner that I closely work with, which is Sankofa CDC, which has a history of doing diabetes work in that community. They already have activated ongoing programs teaching community members that they live and work with because Sankofa lives and work in that lower ninth ward area they're a part of the area they're you know they're ingrained there so they have trusted relationships number one and that was key to recruiting the people within the community itself so everyone knows one another the Xavier University College of Pharmacy has a relationship with the senior center um, they do free uh, testing as well as they bring the pharmacy students over there to the center to do medication education or just health counseling as well. Um, the clinic is in the Sanchez Center, which is the site that we use for free. So there is a connection there already. Um, our two academic partnerships, Xavier and Tulane, were extremely key to this project because they provided resources that we needed with regards to uh, incorporating the science, developing the questionnaires, you know, making sure that our testing uh, was accurate and correct and proper. So bringing the partners together can be very challenging, but it was very easy for us because of the network and the relationship and the camaraderie ship that we have with one another. And that's, I feel, is very, very important for building partnerships and also relationships with one another. We also had a congruent mission. Mm -hmm. Everybody agreed on what we wanted to do to achieve the goals in promoting public health in that area, the area where I 
grew up. Um, that was one of the most devastating uh, areas or neighborhoods in New Orleans after Katrina, which is still suffering from a lack of resources and blight as well. So we're still struggling and building in that area. So that's one of the, you know, the you know, reasons that, not only reasons, but one of the ways that we enabled the partnership building because of the relationships, the trust, and the camaraderieship among each other. Great, thank you, Devin. Yeah, that trust is obviously so crucial in order to really get people uh, uh, on board. Um, thank you for sharing that, uh, Daphne. Uh, Elvira, let me ask you, um, is in terms of your uh, patients, because obviously there are so many programs out there and people are invited to participate in programs, but many times people don't go to any of these activities because, you know, it's like the same idea, oh, they're gonna teach me, I don't see the value. What could you share with a group about what has worked for you in engaging patients into the program? Um, I have to say that one of the things that helped us this time around was really um, doing this virtually because, again, like I mentioned, Corona was highly hit um, with the virus. Patients, the community has been very, um, scared, scared, they've been scarred. Um, and there's been many issues, even including food insecurity, which is what I've been um, working with recently. And what's happened is patients are very, last, we did this, this program last year, and patients were very concerned about how safe it was to you know, go outside, go into a health center even. But the fact that I think that we did it through uh, Zoom and they were able to be home. This gave them another option. Um, and many of them, I have to add, um, it wasn't just them, it was their spouse. I had a 90, there was a 92 year old um, patient who attended with um, their two daughters. So it became a family event. Mm -hmm. And being Latinos, you know, it became also a lot of fun. They all shared. They weren't, um, you know, they didn't, they didn't hold back, and many of them requested another, another opportunity to, to learn, another opportunity to come together. So that's something else that we're thinking of. Um, and as soon as things get even better, um, it would be also great to bring them together right. um, and to share a meal and to share this information with them in person. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that, Alvaro. Yeah, I think that one of the deficiencies that I've seen over the years is that we just talk to the patient and we forget that there's family and friends around that sometimes if they're involved, that could actually be more uh, effective in, in getting their uh, involvement. We do have a question here on the right. Please go ahead. Hi, um, my name is Lindsay Butler. I'm the Vice President of Corporate Alliances for the American Diabetes Association. And just want to first and foremost thank you for having us here. Um, health equity is a huge priority for us around diabetes. And Angie knows, as she's been an amazing partner uh, to us. And you actually partly stole my question, but I wanted to just ask maybe the collective group around the patient engagement piece. We've been very focused on health equity in communities and that community-centered design approach. Uh, we hear oftentimes from our partners and from uh, the healthcare systems that, you know, a lot of times patients are tired and trapped or they don't have an opportunity to get to um, a provider because they're in a care desert or they're in a food desert. What are the measures that you see being most successful when you're addressing that engagement piece? And also, how do you engage the family and the cultural aspects mm -hmm. that can be impacted by that? Great, great question. Thank you for bringing that up. Anyone in the panel? Angie, please. I can start. I think we, we heard a lot of great things that have happened, and SHC has, you know, um, created their champions network. So people that are health equity champions trained, learning from each other on what works best, um, created the, the pharmacy network. Um, thank you, some of you in the audience that are part of that. Um, community pharmacists working together on this. Um, the Interfaith Health Alliance, which you guys heard about yesterday, with you know, started with two pastors, now in 20, 20 states and 20 areas. So, um, you know, I think it's just this listening to the community. Uh, of course, the barbershop medicine that Stephen's doing, um, but getting meeting people where they are. And I, I want to start there and have my 
people doing that uh, build, but those are probably some of the areas that I would say, Lindsay, listening to the communities and then really focusing solutions on the root cause. One thing I didn't mention, that the Type 2 Diabetes Drive Toolkit has 13 different evidence-based solutions for quality improvement. Not everyone's gonna have the same issue in their community. It's gonna be different root causes. Um, so I think being able to listen through those places, meeting where people where they are. Right. Anything briefly to add? Uh, um, yes, I can comment on that. One of our key partners, which I, I continue talking about over and over again, Sankofa, and if you saw Ms. Cheryl in the video, she had Sankofa written on the bottom of on, on her uh, T-shirt. Um, they train community health advocates who are from the community itself because they have ongoing diabetes education programs, cardiovascular education risk reduction programs. You know, in that community where they go out to the homes as well as to faith-based um, institutions, the various churches that are in the area, and they also come to their site. They have an office in the heart of the black community there. So they engage uh, community all across that area in the Lower Ninth Ward where they come across, come across families, um, intergenerational um, members within the community itself. So, and word gets out, you know, it snowballs, it has a snowball effect in other words, where they learn more about what they need to do to improve their health from the education that they receive from the advocates. Sankofa has three advocates that they've trained in this particular area, as well as they receive training from other organizations like the Association of Black Cardiologists on how to reduce cardiovascular disease and risk reductions in that area for those uh, community members. Yeah, and I'll can, um, I know we're gonna run out of time. I'm gonna actually ask the panelists to start thinking about your 30 second closing uh, remark. But let me just add there that um, I think it's about building teams to work in the community. Now, I am privileged also to chair the Healthcare Disparities Committee for the American Diabetes Association. And one thing that is actually great news there will be now formal programs to train healthcare workers in diabetes care because I think it's not just the physician. It's the, the whole group of the nurses, the dietitians, the educators, people that work in mental health and behavioral health, um, navigators, social workers, community health workers. And I think that's the type of partnership that I think will be really effective in, in changing the model. We're not really addressing the chronic care model effectively. Um, so I think that going into the community, but also, as you asked, making it culturally relevant, I think that's very important. And of course, socially, you know, welcomed by, by everybody that is involved. But, uh, you know, I think that it's collective efforts that will, will work. But thank you for, for bringing that up. All right, I think we're going to get, uh, so I'm going to ask in the order that they presented your closing uh, remarks. Uh, Salah? Uh, thank you. I, I know better not to come between people and their lunch, so I... <laughs> just wanted to thank everyone uh, for attending and uh, uh, the forum for inviting us. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Uh, Daphne? Oh, community, community, community. Partnerships. Engage in those yeah. partnerships. That's the way we want to get, it work, get the work done. Thank you, Daphne. Elvira? Um, I have to say meeting patients where they're at. We don't know. Everyone has a history. Everyone uh, comes to our health centers or you get them on the phone. You don't know what's happened to them in the last 24 hours, in the last week. And I think it's important little by little to uh, establish that relationship, gain the trust so you can help them and go beyond just providing, for example, the, the diabetes education, but help them in other ways. Thank you, Elvira. Thank you. Angie? And I would say collaboration, and let's not miss this opportunity. COVID created networks and infrastructure that has really helped these communities. Um, we have improved health. Now it's our turn to give back and help these communities where they really need help with diabetes and other chronic diseases. So please join us. Let's collaborate. Thank you, thank you, Angie. Uh, and I'll just add one uh, final note from my perspective. This is more uh, a personal story, which I think has to do with trying to get out of our comfort zone. And well, I'll, I'll explain that because I've been privileged to work in the Harvard system for many years and I worked at the Jocelyn Diabetes Center. Some of you may have heard about the Jocelyn. It's a highly specialized center in diabetes. And 
I was for many years just waiting for people to come to us, and I created a nice program for the Hispanic community, etc. But it was not working in the way that I thought in terms of helping people. So what I have done for the last few years, I decided now to move to the community. So I actually moved to the Brigham and Women's Hospital that has a, uh, a network of community health centers, and now I see patients in a community health center in Jamaica Plain where there's a lot of Hispanics, African-Americans, and it's obviously not the fancy setting that I used to work in, but I'm much happier now because I think I have the opportunity to work more closely with patients and families with a great team trying to better address all the social, the cultural issues in an effective way. So it's a change that you know not probably everybody may want to do, but I think that's what we need to do in terms of trying to really get out of our comfort zone and try to do better things for our patients. So with that, I'm going to ask you all please to join me in thanking our great panelists for today.